Hi, everyone. Welcome to 2020. This is going to be a very consequential and important year. And amongst the things that are happening this year is Christiana and I are publishing a book, The Future We Choose. It's out on the 25th of February. In both the United States and a UK version. That's right. Different covers, same book. You can go to wechoosethefuture.com right now and pre-order yourself half a dozen copies. And shall we share a couple of the comments that have been made on the book? Christiana and I are right now sitting in Davos, where we're here for the World Economic Forum. And we are very honoured that Klaus Schwab, the CEO and founder of the World Economic Forum, just gave us a quote in support of the book. And he said, by showing us a clear picture of the possible futures, who we need to be and what we need to do, this could be the most important wake-up call of our time. Very Klaus nice Schwab. Klaus Schwab. So please... Go to wechoosethefuture.com, pre-order your copy now. We're very excited for you to read it. On with the podcast. Hello and welcome to Outrage and Optimism. My name's Tom Rafik Karnak. I'm Christiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. Today, we're back. And we're going to be speaking about 2020, why it is probably the most important year in the history of humanity. And we speak to Kevin Rudd, former Prime Minister of Australia, about the great Australian inferno. Thanks for being here. Okay, so many, many very consequential things for the world have happened since we last saw you a few weeks ago. But one thing that is of almost zero consequence for the world, but huge consequence for us, is that we have been rated rather highly in the top podcasts in the world. We're actually number 15 podcasts Top in the 15 world. podcasts, according to The Guardian. Who'd have thought it? With no experience or really any idea what we're doing. But with a lot of your very <laughs> good input. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. We are grateful to all our guests and all our listeners. So guys, we're back. This is it. 2020. It's going to be a big year. How are you both doing? Oh my God. We've been talking about 2020 for so many years (laughs) and now it's like here. Feels a bit surreal. It does feel surreal. Speaking of surreal, Marina and I were in Costa Rica just a few, a week ago. Um, And we witnessed the most amazing thing. We were on a pink island, on a pink island. I'm hoping that you're appreciating this. (laughs) <laughs> on a pink island, watching the sunset. Then we got back on our little boat at sunset to go back to land. And this amazing moon rose over the hills. So we had the sunset and we had the first full moon of the decade mm. rising over us. And it honestly, it just hit me so deeply, I started crying. Of course, crying is not difficult for me, right? But I just thought, oh my God, this is it. This is 2020. This is the year. This is the decade that we've been talking about, planning for, fearing for a long time. And now it is upon us. Did did you see that full moon? I did, although your exact description of it isn't really making any friends with those of us in the Northern Hemisphere. Yeah, who are in the I'm middle sorry of winter. about that. So I think I glimpsed it the, through the rain pink, clouds. The in the, pink in the, yeah, exactly. exactly. And, okay. <laughs> what about you, Paul? How are you? 
I'm well, Tom. I've had a, a good break and I am actually very struck by what Christiana just said about the beauty of nature. I recall, it's a ridiculous story, but you know it, Tom, that uh, before I got involved in climate change, I went to the G8 conference in Birmingham in 1998 with an enormous sign that said the earth is dying and I stood there all day. Um, but somebody came up to me and said, it is, isn't it? But it's so beautiful. I was just looking at the flowers and the plants. And I was actually touched that we remember that behind everything we do is the exquisite joy of nature, of our beautiful world. And that's what inspires us. So thank you, Christiana, for reminding us why we're all doing what we do. I have to say, I mean, I think my predominant feeling of going into 2020, because I've been, you know, a tiny bit afraid of 2020 that it would be a marker of us not doing what we need to do and you know christiana with colleagues we started mission 2020 because we realized a while ago that this was going to be the critical year could we reach the turning point but actually the feeling that i've had these last few weeks is this is it right now we're going to find out if we're serious about dealing with this threat and by 20 by this time in 10 years when we're sitting at the beginning of the 2030s we'll know if we've done it and I kind of wonder if it always had to get to this point where it is now do or die. We have a limited time period neatly encapsulated by a concept we all understand, which is this decade, the 20s. And in a way, it kind of felt like a bit of a relief. You know, the kind of mess and the noise of is it, isn't it, et cetera. Like, this is it. Now we're going to dig in and we're going to find out if we're serious. Well, it's. I, I was actually thinking a little bit along the same lines because – I know that I work very well when I plan ahead and prepare whatever I need to, but that the ultimate oomph comes when I put myself under pressure. Right. And this is the ultimate oomph, right? This is it. We, ha we have now collectively, all of us on this planet, put ourselves under the ultimate pressure. So, so just to dig in, because I think it's important, and you touched on this a minute ago, Christiana, to ensure we all have a shared level of understanding as to why this decade is so critical and why this year is so critical. Um, as you said, in the 2020s, we need to halve emissions. No opportunity to miss that target at all. And the reason for that is that if we want to have any chance at all of staying within 1.5 degrees of temperature rise, and don't forget we're at a degree already, we need to be at net zero emissions probably well before 2050. Now, if we prevaricate again and we miss the chance to reduce emissions by half in this decade, then the precipitous decline that would be required after that would just be impossible. And the loading of greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere would mean we had completely run out of time by 2030. Now, 2020, within and that decade... And perilously crossed many tipping points that are completely uncontrollable. Exactly. And we're beginning to see them. And we're beginning we're, to see uncontrollable. And we'll talk about that. Um but the reason 2020 as a year is so critical, I mean, it's unbelievable the number of things that are happening this year that will have a consequential impact on the next decade. I mean, the US election is the most blindingly obvious example that's going to have a big impact, but also an extremely consequential climate negotiation that's going to set the tone for the next four years. On top of that, just to not keep it to climate, we have a very, very important meeting on biodiversity in China, right. and we have a very important agreement on oceans. So honestly, you know, because we now t finally understand that oceans 
climate and biodiversity are completely linked as ecosystems that depend on each other and support each other. This is why many people in the environmental world are calling this year the super year. Right. In addition to the fact that it is the super decade for climate. Right. Well, these linking of different environmental factors and biodiversity, which you'll always remember is the polite name for mass extinction. We have to kind of call things by a name here. Our increasing awareness that these issues are linked, I think, can build power behind the movement we need to do the right thing. People talk about politics malfunctioning, but what's really happened is business or money uh, has overtaken politics. But our opportunity here is for politics to overtake business, to reassert ourselves through new structures and new systems. Uh, and I think that's a, a tremendously exciting opportunity. So yes, the nation state politics are vital. Yes, the US election is vital. But beyond that, we can see new opportunities, I think, for uh, coherent organization of the world beyond those battles between the nation states, which are critical, but they're not the only territory right. on which we're acting. One one of the opportunities for that, Paul, might be, um, in, ironically, the fact that the World Economic Forum, as um, as many listeners know, puts out an annual risk report that is based on um, on a survey that they put out to hundreds, yeah. if not thousands, I'm not sure how many, um, basically industry leaders and maybe some public sector leaders as well. And, um, and climate change and environmental issues has been sort of cl slowly climbing up the ladder from being the least important, perhaps maybe 10 or 12 years ago, uh, to the astonishing point where it is for the first time ever in a World Economic Forum risk report, it is number one, number one risk to the global economy, to the stability and the growth of the global economy, according to this risk report, is climate. Number two is climate. Number three is climate and biodiversity loss. Number four and five are other environmental issues. All top five issues for the first time in the history of the World Economic Forum, which is 50 which, this year, which celebrates its 50th anniversary this year. All of the top issues have nothing to do with politics, with war, with conflicts, with economic instability, with financial policy, with fiscal policy. It has all five of them have to do with environmental issues. That is totally a first. It's a new world. That is, yeah. a, you know, that that's another full moon rising over. <laughs> right, right, right. And one other thing, I mean, that's, that's, I mean, it's just a game changer, right, compared to where we were even a few years ago. Um, but Paul, I mean, one of the, there's been a lot of things that have happened in the few short weeks since the new year and the dawn of the 2020s. Um, but one of them was uh, this remarkable letter that was sent by Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, which, which again, seemed to signal a sort of massive point of departure from the past. I mean, you've been a student of investor behavior on climate for a long time. What did you make of this? It's all good. Um, BlackRock is incredibly significant with assets of about 7 trillion, more than the GDP of Germany. Uh, the actions BlackRock take influence every company in the world because BlackRock owns a reasonable slice of every company in the world. And uh, the newfound commitment uh, to, for example, 
uh, sell out of coal assets in their active funds. And I think that the thing I particularly want to highlight is them joining the CA100 plus group of investors. Now, this is an active group of investors who have been who are becoming more and more influential using their collective power. And this is critical investors acting together using their collective power to try and uh, limit the lobbying on climate change to stop corporate influence of government. And it's worth remembering that at the World Economic Forum where you are, uh, there is uh, a strong concentration of these global organizations and they've got the information systems to actually understand what is happening throughout the world. And they've got the data and the planning horizons that causes them to act in a more rational way than a lot of governments that seem to be compromised by uh, a certain amount of uh, what I think uh, Kevin Rudd, who we're going to talk to in a while, would call uh, political corruption. It's always blown my mind uh, that the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald uh, in 2011 said, how much does it cost to bring down a prime minister? The answer, a tad over $22 million. That's how much money the mining industry spent in six weeks last year on its campaign against Kevin Rudd's plan for a resource super profit tax. So we're now eight years, nine years after that event, but we continue to see these, uh, this uh, uh, contest, in a sense, between uh, good business and bad business, between good governments and bad governments. But it does feel like a tipping point. Yeah, and I think the language that he used, and, and Bill McKibben, who's no no stranger to, to to naming hard truths, you know, pointed out the fact that he said that this is we are now globally on the edge of a fundamental reshaping of finance, and you know, this as far as he, he's written an amazing piece in the New Yorker where he basically says this is the beginning of the end for the financial services industry investing in fossil fuels. This is a seismic shift, and we'll look back on this as a watershed moment. So the question is. Um we, we take heart from, from that possibility. Do we also take heart from the incredibly painful, destructive megafires in Australia? Jesus. That is a huge question, right? Because um, there are quite a few people uh, who have uh, always said it takes, it's going to take some mega disaster in the United States or in Australia or in you know any of the other countries that have been obstreperous on on climate, um, in order to turn the policy and and this is the big question for Australia. In Australian fires that everyone has read about started way before the summer season because it's usually you have fires when this summer hits, but they started way before. In fact, the summer season has only just barely started. And why did this start? Well. For starters, because Australia has had four to five years of extreme droughts, because the average temperature in Australia has been at least 1.5 degrees Celsius higher than the usual for that period of the year. And those two things combined made for uh, these mega fires, the likes of which Australia has never, ever seen. Uh, some scientists are saying that there were one billion live animals that were burned to death. 
one billion animals. All of us know that Australia is home to many animals that are completely unique to Australia. The koalas, the kangaroos, they're completely, they don't exist anywhere else in the world. And scientists cannot tell us whether the ecosystems that have been burned to the ground will actually have the resilience to come back. In fact, scientists don't even know whether many of the species that have now been destroyed to, um, to population levels that they may not be able to further reproduce and we may see the demise of those species just from these fires over the past few months. Absolutely horrifying. Absolutely horrifying what has happened in Australia. And, you know, it's what science has been telling us for years. This is going to happen. But it's happening now. It's not in the future. We have seen this. The world has been witnessing this amazing destruction. Um, and it is just something that is that just... Yeah. puts us all puts us all in tears it really does if 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 listeners haven't come across it then um the new york times runs an amazing podcast called the daily and they recently ran an amazing episode where the journalists went to australia and visited many of these individuals whose whose homes have been destroyed and the thing that really got me was they went to visit this one place where all the animals had come inside to be protected and as the fire got closer, they wrapped all the kangaroos and all the koalas in blankets and they put them in the back of the truck and they escaped. But they were so vulnerable in this context. And of course, we don't yet know the massive damage to this endemic population of what this endemic wildlife. So, of both plants and animals. Of both plants and animals. So, now, can I say one sure. positive thing here? And that is the amazing, amazing, dedicated, self-sacrificing work of the firefighters. Yeah, amazing. Oh, my gosh. What those firefighters did with, honestly, with, with tools and, uh, and, and infrastructure way under, way under the capacity of what they really would have needed. But, you know, if there are heroes of this incredible fire, um, it's the firefighters. I agree completely. Can I ask a question about stubborn optimism in the face of this? Sure. Good idea. So the news and photos and videos coming out of Australia this month have really been putting optimism on trial. Mm -hmm. So how does a stubborn optimist acknowledge the reality of the situation and respond still with optimism? Well, very interesting, Clay, because um, we're, we're, we're just about to turn our, our listeners over to a fascinating interview that we had with Kevin Rudd, former Prime Minister of Australia, who's no longer living in Australia, at least for the time being, um, but who's just come back from Australia. And, uh, and, and in the back of our minds, Tom and I, who spoke to him, was exactly your question. And I, uh, you know, and and you will listen to the interview. But what I thought was incredibly moving was his statement at the end that he sees this as the seeds of the turning point on climate change in Australia. If it had to come to so much destruction, then the price and 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 if the price had to be so high, um, then at least the price is being paid for a turning point in Australia because the people have finally risen to uh, to the fact that there was just such total mismanagement and such denial of climate change and hence such irresponsible climate policy in Australia for over 10 years that he sees this as a very important turning point. 
And and I'd also just add to what Christiana said that by by saying that we think that stubborn optimism is a force that can change the world, we're not proposing that anybody should shy away from the challenging reality of this moment that we're facing. What we're saying actually is the inverse of that, that sometimes um, facing the future and having a determination to work to make that future as good as we could is most relevant when the outlook is the darkest. So at this moment where we face this terrible impact and our hearts are breaking for our Australian friends, we need to look at the future with a sense of resolve that this has to be a tipping point or a turning point, and we can turn this to something positive whereby we can turn the course of human history and of the history of this planet towards actually exerting our responsibilities. That is a different understanding of optimism from what some people have. And if some people don't like that word, you know, we're not attached to it. Use the word courage, use whatever works for you. But from our perspective, that spirit, that determination to actually make a change is a form of optimism and is a form of stubborn optimism. And that's what we need to exhibit if we're going to prevail. And to pull up the courage and the responsibility to to not only come to the conclusion we can change this, but we must. Right. And we must because there is no other option for humanity simply for that reason. So as Christiana said, uh, today uh, we are very honoured and fortunate to interview uh, Kevin Rudd. Kevin was Australia's 26th and 28th Prime Minister. Back in 2007, he led the Labour Party to a landslide victory at a time when climate change action in Australia was high on the public agenda. Um, During his time in office, he demonstrated his commitment to climate change and social justice. He ratified the Kyoto Protocol in 2007. He implemented legislation for a mandatory renewable energy target of 20% by 2020, which we believe has exceeded its target. Um, And he issued an apology, a very moving apology to Indigenous Australians for the stolen generation. Uh, We've known Kevin and worked with him for some years um, and always been impressed at his forthrightness, his willingness to really tell it like it is. Uh, Christiana and I talked to him in Davos earlier today. This is a great interview. I think you'll really enjoy it. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us on Outrage and Optimism, particularly um, because you've just returned from Australia and it must be hanging very heavily on both your heart and your mind uh, what is going on uh, in Australia. But could b- before we go to, uh, to the facts, which we have already shared with our listeners and to your interpretation about the politics of this, could, could we start with your heart? How did it make you feel to be down there, Kevin, to see the destruction, to see the impact of trauma on people, to be aware of the loss of human life, of you know so many animals that have been burned to death, the acreage, all of that. How does it make you feel? As an Australian, you uh, observe this up-close personal while it's happening, knowing that members of your extended family who have um, farmlands across Australia uh, and others who are close to you are all directly affected by this. I call it the Great Australian Inferno. It's not a regular Mm. bushfire. I grew up on a farm in rural Australia and I remember when we'd have big bushfires in the past, but these were localised. 
And what we're seeing now is something across the nation. The other feeling uh, that uh, I've had, and I think many Australians have had, is uh, one of absolute tragedy. Um, not just through the loss of life and not just through the impact on the Australian biosphere, an untold loss in terms of plants and animals and possibly entire species, but that this was all in our national scientific reports as a projection mm -hmm. and a prediction 10, 15 years ago. I remember standing and reading when I was Prime Minister, the relevant uh, extracts from our national scientific body, which is called the CSIRO, the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization, which 15 years ago was saying the impact of climate change in Australia, already one of the driest continents on earth, will be as follows. In southeastern and southern and southwestern Australia, uh, basically the Mediterranean zone of Australia's climate, um, we will see earlier droughts, more intense droughts, longer droughts, and as a consequence, fires that we've never seen before. This was all in the scientific projections way back then. Give us the date of that, Kevin. Uh, these uh, scientific reports were from about 2006, uh, 7, 8. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, uh, when you um, proclaim the science in those days in Australia um, and still in Australia, uh, there is a massive conservative reaction, which goes to the politics mm -hmm. of where we are. But frankly, I've always had a view as then as a prime minister, but now just as a global citizen, that... If you're in national office and you've got political responsibility, once you read the science, you have a fiduciary duty to act in defense of your own nation and collectively in defense mm. of the planet. And so it's this mixture of horror and tragedy and um, unbelievable regret, national regret, that the, um, the science has not been properly listened to um, some time ago. So, Kevin, do you actually think this could have been prevented by proper action at the proper time? Well, this is at two levels. First is an immediate uh, capacity to respond through what we call in the climate change debate adaptation, which in a dry continent, which is subject to um, massive fires, um, and in other parts of the world, as you know, uh, subject to uh, massive and unseasonable tropical storms. In our case, there was always a warning message there about how do we adapt, uh, that is, by enhancing our bushfire fighting capabilities. Now, that's at one level. That's mm -hmm. an adaptation task. Mm -hmm. The other question um, in terms of avoidability is, of course, both a national and a global message. The conservatives will often say in Australia, well, we're 1.3% of global emissions. So what if we decided to be pure? So what if we decided to radically decarbonize? If the rest of the world doesn't, and it probably won't, so the conservative argument goes, uh, then Australia still burns. So what's the point? Of course, you know the response to that, and I do as well that if each and every country which is a middle-sized emitter like Australia was to get a get-out-of-jail-free card, then that's a quarter of global emissions itself um, uh, before you get on to the big emitters, China, the United States and India. So the point is 
If Australia was continuing to act like a responsible global citizen and significantly cutting its national emissions, it then provides you with a platform in the global community to be a climate change action leader, not just a spoiler, which is what the current Australian Conservative government has become. So it sounds like there's two levels of that, right? One is the global responsibility um, and the other is the local preparation, both in terms of um, preventative adaptation, as you have mentioned. So recently, Kevin, you have spoken about the, um, the reaction of the government as being evasive, tepid, and above all, too late. Um, what do you really think? <laughs> well... Uh, it's difficult not to feel rage while your country burns yeah. in front of your eyes. Um, and for all the conservative parties in Australia and conservative parties elsewhere in the world have got climate change, as you know from your own work, um, and have become part of the global solution. But conservative parties in Australia and in the United States have, have formed this ungodly alliance of anchored in climate change denialism, fueled by the uh, lobbying funding from the carbon industry, um, and let's call it the politics of fear, to create this cocktail, uh, which makes it very difficult to politically proceed with responsible national climate change action, by which I mean emissions reductions, um, in the face of all that. Turbocharging the above in the United States and in Australia is, of course, uh, the presence of the Murdoch media. And the Murdoch media in Australia own 70% of the print media. They, in America, they run Fox News. Mm. Uh, these are enormous platforms for sustained denialism on the climate change science and therefore the need for action. So therefore, when you're up against all of that as a political leader, and I myself have, um, uh, have accumulated political scar tissue uh, from Murdoch and the Conservatives in Australia on climate change. Indeed. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's still 10 years on uh, is repeating the same themes. My successor, Prime Minister Abbott, was a denialist from central casting. He famously said in Australian politics that climate change is crap. That's a technical Australian scientific term for he doesn't believe in it. Um, uh, as if science is a matter of opinion as opposed to empirical fact. Uh, his successor, Malcolm Turnbull, tried to give him some credit. Um, and uh, he was in office during the Paris Accord where you played such a critical role. Uh, but his successor again, uh, Prime Minister Morrison, is back to the Abbott climate change denialist um, fraternity. They don't say overtly anymore that they deny the science, but they refuse to accept responsibility uh, in terms of reducing Australian carbon emissions. So, but their partner in crime in this, and I use the term advisedly, is the Murdoch media who day in, day out, legitimise the actions of the government on climate and day in, day out, vilify those uh, who raise uh, the argument that we're a part of a global family and that if the world, if we expect the world to act on climate change, then Australia cannot hide in a corner and pretend that we yeah. somehow don't exist. And, and Kevin, I mean, no one's had more experience of that denialist media than you. Um, 
But I'm curious to know, you know, there's been a narrative in, in climate change and in climate change activism. And we had Tom Friedman on the podcast a couple of months ago. And, and he said about the United States, he said, we're waiting for the mother of all storms. Mm-hmm. And that when that hits, reality will begin to penetrate even the most resistant, you know, forms of denialism. I mean, what's happened to Australia couldn't be bigger and closer to what was being described there. But the sort of resistance to reality that still seems to endure. Do you, do you see any cracks in that as the kind of anger builds on the street? Looking at it from the outside, the denialism just seems to go deeper and deeper. Do you, do you see any signs that that will change? I've certainly heard Tom Friedman say that before, certainly about the United States around I now live and work and have my being and, uh, and have to read this denialist crap every day in America as well. Mm. Um, but... Oh, you're, you're also using that technical word now. <laughs> uh, I am, but I'm sure it doesn't translate into other languages, but it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's got four letters and it's more respectable than other four-letter words <laughs> that are used, in fact, more frequently in my country. The, um, in Australia, uh, I may be um, optimistic, but my sense is, given the dimensions of what we've just seen and are still seeing in Australia... Uh, as we speak in this podcast, um, is the beginnings of the beginning of a change Hmm. uh, in terms of underpinning national sentiment. You see, when I was elected as Prime Minister back in 2007, I ran a very bold, upfront program of climate change action. Um, I stood in coal mines and said, over time, uh, while the good people who work here have to have their jobs respected, Uh, we're going to become a lower carbon economy in a lower carbon world and our task is to adjust. Um, And the people voted for that. But when the rubber hit the road and we um, uh, brought in a carbon price, um, the Conservatives having sought to defeat it uh, twice in the Australian Senate before we eventually were able to get it through, that's when it polarised rapidly. And you could see Mm. uh, the politics of our country changing in front of our eyes as the fear campaign directed by the Conservatives that the cost of acting on climate change was vastly in in excess of and more immediate than the cost of inaction, that this became the alchemy of a continuing fear campaign which we've seen for the last 10 years and every subsequent Australian national election since then. But in terms of this great Australian inferno, as I call it, of the last month or two, I sense that those who have sat on the margins of this debate, not the hardcore climate denialists themselves, have seen this uh, as uh, a message from the gods. And I think for the world... um, I'm stunned myself at the level of global engagement with the Australian inferno. I thought it would be big, but it's bigger than I thought it would be. Mm. And for the Mm. world, I think the great Australian inferno has become a beacon light for us all that what you see unfolding before your eyes in Australia uh, is a fire soon to come to you, is a hurricane soon to come to you, is inundation soon to come to you as well. Yes. Oh. Well, I, I think, you know, the grief uh, that has pervaded public opinion around the world, the grief about the just unspeakable, irreparable, irrecoverable loss 
certainly the human lives, but also, as I said before, the ecosystems, the animals, is just uh, the outpouring of grief has been really very, um, very moving to me, even as a non-Australian. I think that's true. Um, look, there's something about our koalas which uh, have a global resonance, uh, but mm. our koalas, which are already endangered uh, through other impacts on the biosphere, I've read some reports in the Australian media that we may have lost one third of our national koala population. Um, when you look um, at the reports in the University of Sydney that between half a billion and a billion animals of various species uh, have been destroyed in these fires so far, fires which so far have taken out a land area of about, uh, I've, I'll put this into hectares, but a land area this about half the size of Germany. Um, wow. Uh, this is um, this is stuff of the apocalypse, um, yeah. and it's not just the human species; uh, it's those who share the planet with us Everything. as well. Yeah. So, on the question though, of going forward, I to go back to your question, I see the seeds of change in this. Mm. I see the seeds of change not just within my own country, um, and a and the emergence of a level of political anger towards the current Prime Minister, not just over his mismanagement of the fires, but his mismanagement of climate, will build into something. And I have some level of hope that internationally, as people look at the great Australian inferno, uh, that they see um, a prophetic message for them as well. Well, if, if this is what it takes, right, uh, for the partisan squabbling to settle down and for all of us to realize that this has nothing to do with party politics, um, then it's it's a very painful and high price to pay. But as long as the price has been paid, you know, may it may it lead to uh, to more wisdom on the um, on dealing with climate change and and in that context, Kevin, on accountability. The government has called for a royal commission investigation. What, what do you think that royal commission might achieve? Do you have hopes that it will bring some transparency, some accountability, or is it a political play? Uh, it's just bullshit. The um, royal commissions are often preferred by conservative governments in Australia when they get themselves into political trouble. It's an exercise in issue management. It's not an issue. It's not an exercise in serious climate change analysis or bushfire prevention or adaptation strategy. Um, and they have a past record of doing this sort of thing whenever they've got into political trouble in the past. The truth is, the national scientific bodies in Australia have delivered the verdict on the impact of climate on Australia, as I said before, for a decade and a half. Mm. You know, through the excellent work globally of the um, International Panel of Climate Change Scientists, that the same work has been done globally. Most responsible nation states, independent scientific bodies have done the same for their individual nations. So what is there to discover here? The science is screaming at us and has been screaming at us for a long time. That's why people like you and I have been active in the field, you know, since the gnarly days of Copenhagen, through the better days of Paris, uh, through the disappointments of Madrid and hopefully something better in Glasgow. Um, but uh, I don't know what more can be said or concluded about the science. So therefore, 
for people of goodwill, women and men of goodwill around the world, I would say this is the time for action. Mm. Get politically engaged. If you are a conservative, get politically engaged. I've been speaking with members of the Republican Party here in the United States who lament the loss of, uh, frankly, President Nixon's early environmental activism and the Clean Air Act and the other legislation in the United States in the late 60s, early mm. 70s, uh, to reclaim that for the Republican Party. Uh, but for also for Democrats and centre-left parties around the world not to be tepid uh, in our politics or our policy. We have to have about us a politics which brings the countries and the world forward. And I think the core of it is this. It's not just now the vision of Dante's Inferno that we've seen, literally, um, but it is also taking on head-on the essential lie in the debate that the cost of action uh, is greater than the cost of inaction. This has now reached a proportionality where we must not hide from that debate on the economics, but take it head on by the throat and saying... Lean into it. Lean into it. And you climate change denialists are destroying our children's jobs. You're destroying our nation's future. Uh, You're destroying our tourism industry. You're destroying the rest of it. You bunch of economic vandals. Yeah. That is the argument which I think we must take, not just from the left, but from the right, uh, in order Mm. to fundamentally change the global political forum on this. So Mm. we don't get Mm. tepid national statements at Madrid-type conferences as everyone hedges waiting for someone else to move a nanobite in a particular direction on a particular issue. But we're galvanised. Uh, in a Martin Luther King type moment of saying, for God's sake, <laughs> this has got to stop. Uh, you know, saving the planet's not all that hard, guys. <laughs> you know, get with the program. <laughs> well, particularly not when the number's coming out. I mean, we've seen numbers as high as 100 billion in terms of the economic cost of the great Australian inferno, as I'm now going to call it as well. I mean, it's incredible. That's true. When you see the final roll on costs, uh, not just the immediate loss of life and property, which is of itself uh, significant and tragic, but the roll on costs. I mean, I don't know if you saw the reporting recently of people having to bail out of the Australian Tennis Open in Melbourne um, because of the impact of smoke. People who I know who visited Australia for the first time to spend their beautiful summer in Sydney, um, land of clean beaches and clean air, to be two weeks of Beijing-type smoke. I mean, this is... I mean, the roll-on cost to the economy in all this, for all those, you know, uh, reprobates out there, recalcitrants who somehow believe uh, that, uh, that acting on climate change is is economically irresponsible. This also is the signal moment. And therefore, if we grasp both these things, the image and the reality of the inferno, uh, which legitimately strikes terror into people's hearts, it does. Fire is a terrifying thing. I've seen it as a kid growing up when a wave of flame comes over the hill towards your property. This is a very existential moment. It's harnessing that, but also in the core debate about jobs and the economy to say this is the necessary way to go to build uh, the resilient renewable economy and sustainable economy of the future. It's doable. It's not just lefty utopianism. Well, we would definitely agree with you that um, that, that this is doable. And the, the mystery of these 10 or even more years of climate wars in Australia 
um, is really very hard to understand unless you see it through Murdoch eyes um, and uh, and that and and pressure from the coal industry in particular, which leads me to ask you, Kevin, is there anything? I mean, obviously, two very very different issues with many you know contrasts uh, between them, but um, but we were really struck by uh, the clarity of the plebiscite on gay marriage in uh, in in Australia, and is there? Anything to be learned from that experience that um, the people could be asked now after the inferno, as soon as recovery can take place? Um, is there anything to be learned from that experience? To some extent, um, when, as you know from your own experience in politics, that there is a national mood change unfolding, one of the hardest things to do in politics is to pick the tipping point now, for example, um, I'm proud of the fact that I'm the uh, first Australian Prime Minister to go to an election uh, in 2007, uh, undertaking to ratify Kyoto, bring in a re renewable energy target and a legislative carbon price. Well, we did all those things uh, and with a mandate. And as President Obama has said to me privately since then, your problem, Kevin, is you're too far ahead of the curve. And they came and got you. <laughs> well, he's right. Um, but I make no apologies for it. Similarly on uh, gay marriage and marriage equality. But the underlying point is that after they rejected uh, at the polls uh, what we were putting forward uh, as um, the need to deliver marriage equality in 2013, it took about three years after that for a bottom-up revolt to occur uh, against the conservative forces in Australia and said, this is just nuts. This is just nuts. <laughs> and, and it's interesting to see how much the conservative side of politics read those signals once the tipping point had been crossed. So mm -hmm. your question has validity, and that is, is there, therefore, uh, an underlying social change aware, an attitudinal change, mm -hmm. which makes it irresistible for the forces of denialism to prevail? One little straw in the wind. Uh, uh, Murdoch himself, um, the great orchestrator and architect of climate change denialism in the United States and in Australia, in a uh, annual general meeting recently of News Corporation in Australia, when asked a question about this, declared, quote, well, there are no climate change denialists in News Corporation, unquote. Of course, that too was bullshit. It was a complete lie. But the fact that he actually, for the first time, felt compelled to say that uh, as part of, shall we say, a crab walk uh, from where they've been in terms of loud and proud denialism on everything to hang on, this might be affecting our share price. Um, mm -hmm. that That's I information. That, mm -hmm. I, that I find interesting. So we should not expect these guys to turn around and say, we've had a Damascus Road experience, we've seen the light, uh, it's all fine, uh, off you go. Uh, Kevin and his successors, uh, we admit that we got it wrong in the past. Murdoch doesn't do that. Um, and in fact, what they'll do with the Conservatives is orchestrate, I think, the appearance of climate change action uh, for mm. political issue management purposes domestically. And we shouldn't be deluded by that. But we should mm -hmm. be encouraged by the fact that these guys now know that they are in a defensive posture. And yes. that is important for progressive forces to understand. D defensive against public opinion, growing public opinion. 
Yeah, and it's uh, it evolves over time, and uh, so we shouldn't be under any illusions about what we're up against, but we should be emboldened um, personally, politically, socially, culturally um, in what we do. The economists of the world, uh, rather than hiding in a corner, uh, need to fully engage the debate and, uh, frankly, uh, rip the head off these people yeah. uh, who still, at this late stage, uh, play the politics of denial or equivocate over the economics. Well, Kevin, thank you very, very much. And, and Kevin, thank you for the straight talk that you always share with us. And, um, and thank you for your commitment to continue on this no matter what. There's, you know, everything can be thrown at you and you just absolutely never waver on your commitment to this, uh, to this mission of creating a better world for everyone. Well, I think one day they'll just take me out in a box, uh, but I don't intend to stop before then. Well, they'll then. take all of us out of <laughs> a box. That's not novel. <laughs> That's not novel, but I intend to be active until they put the nails in. So, there you uh, <laughs> go. Die with our boots on. <laughs> but your, the, the title of your podcast series, Outrage and Optimism, that is, uh, frankly, the haiku of where we are in Australia now. Hmm. Outrage mm. well, thank and optimism. You. Thank you. Well yes, done. outrage and optimism. Thank you thank very you. much, Kevin. Thank, thank, thank you, you so you. much. Good to spend time with you. So, um, I mean, as, as ever, Kevin is, uh, is a remarkable leader and, um, and willing to really go there in terms of what is now needed to make progress. Uh, what did you guys leave that conversation with? Well, I mean, it was uh, extraordinary to hear him speak with such kind of clarity and force about uh, his his country and uh, the, uh, the the devastating uh, fires there. I, I was really struck by him saying it is difficult not to feel rage. Mm. Uh, conservative parties in Australia have formed this unholy alliance funded by the fossil fuel industry and fueled by the Murdoch media. Uh, and he mentioned Fox News and talked about an alliance even between Australia and the United States. Uh, we cannot any longer tolerate this influence on our political affairs uh, from financial interests from the fossil fuel industry. It absolutely has to stop. Um, I'm going to reference a, a piece of drama which I saw, uh, which was called The Loudest Voice in the Room, and it was about the foundation of Fox News. I don't think it's particularly appropriate to reference drama, but... A comment about the founder of Fox News, Roger Ailes, who uh, was the heart of the drama, uh, was, was um, commented on by one of the actors in the drama I read afterwards. And they said, he was not corrupted by power. He corrupted power. <laughs> and I think that's what we're looking at at the moment. We are seeing power itself corrupted by unbelievably dangerous behavior. Unfortunately, we, uh, as discussed earlier, are going to see more and more extreme weather and that's not going to change. And therefore this crazy opposition to action on climate change, that's what must, can, and will change. Hmm. You know, I have to confess that over the past few weeks, I have noticed that my tolerance for misinformation and contorted, quote-unquote, science and facts on climate change has gone not to zero, but to negative 40. 
my tolerance for deliberate misleading and misinformation on climate change. I have just lost all tolerance. And I find myself wondering how long is it going to take before deliberate misinformation, which is what Kevin Rudd spoke about, is recognized as a crime against humanity. Yeah. Because underneath it all, that's what it is. I was actually off off microphone when we were talking to Kevin and he said that um, he didn't think that Australians really understood just how these fires have emotionally affected people in other parts of the world. And I think that that's actually been, in the midst of all this horror, it's been really moving to see just how universal that extension of care is from humanity. I mean, I know I have friends and I've seen in the media, there's people have been absolutely distraught about what's been happening in Australia, about the, the impact, of course, to human life and to property, but the impact on biodiversity, on the endemic ecosystems, etc. It has been absolutely desperate for people and people need tools to manage that emotionally. But I think that's a really hopeful sign mm -hmm. that, you know, to the degree that those people who would tell us that we only care about ourselves and we can only empathise with our families, etc., when stuff like this happens... That is evidently mm. not true. Yeah, good and point. And actually, um, that's going to help us. It's going to help us a lot. Good point. And, and, and let's recognize that we've got far more power than we realize that these investors, these corporations that are responding, they know that it's our money that we invest. It's our money that we spend. And we, the people, as we become more and more aware of this, are capable of expressing ourselves in different ways. Business may have overtaken politics, but now it's time for politics to overtake business. And that's a very exciting new angle. So... This has been our first episode of 2020. We are glad to be back. We've missed all of you. This has been fun to be back together again, guys. Uh, and now we're back on schedule. So every week, if we can manage it, if Clay can keep up with the workload, we will be producing another version, another episode of Outrage and Optimism. This is a big year. We're all in for this year. We know and hope that you're all in too. There's going to be a lot of exciting things happen. We're going to unpack them here for you, help you understand them. We're thrilled to be back. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye-bye. And there you have it. The first episode of season two of Outrage and Optimism. Outrage and Optimism is a production of Global Optimism and is produced by Clay Carnell. I'd like to thank Callum Grieve, Fran Newman, Pete Cluttenbrock, Chloe Revel, Marina Mancilla, Zoe Cherlock-Antich, Nigel Topping, and Michael Northrup. You can find us online at Global Optimism on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And if you're more of an email person and you want to shoot us an email, podcast at globaloptimism.com. And last but not least, please leave us a rating and write us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out. All right. Happy 2020. We'll see you next week. <laughs>